You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 29th of February, 2024. Vladimir Putin threatens the West with nuclear doom again. The Dutch mayor, who thinks the tolerant approach to drugs has backfired, and publication day for the world's laziest magazine. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Latika Burke and Somnath Batabayal will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear promising news of an overdue rail link between Italy and the Balkans. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Latika Burke, journalist and geopolitics specialist, and by Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in media and development and international journalisms at SOAS. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Hello. Um, Somnath, you get to go first for two reasons. One is that you are the poor sap in the designated non-Australian chair at this show. which, 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 which <laughs> You're which, very kind. Which is always a trial. Um, the other is that you have not only a book out, you bought me a copy. So yes. you definitely get to plug it. Please go right ahead. This is Red River. It is a novel. Tell us more. So Red River has just been published in India. It should come out end of the year um, in the UK and the US. I'll be able to tell you more the next time I come on. I've just come you, back. You're going to milk the plug over successive yes, appearances. Over, over the next okay. six months. Excellent. Good. I have just come back from a six-city tour in India. And this book, much about it, is about the northeast of India mm-hmm. where I was born. And my school um, and being a depressed child, I wrote quite ferociously about the school and what happened there, the politics of the school and the violence in the northeast of the 80s and 90s. But my school kind of gave me a homecoming, 900 full auditorium, Bihu <laughs> dancing and mementos. So, you know, it's just... Did, I, did you stand up on the stage and read out a long list of everybody who'd bullied you and ask, where, where, where I, are I, they I, now? I, eh? named, hey. I named and shamed them and they were the ones garlanding me. <laughs> Thankfully, I had ensured that the distributors did not have the book one day before. So, yeah, so I did that and next day I flew out. Um, fantastic. Uh, uh, Jaipur Literature Festival, the biggest in mm-hmm. the world. Uh Good first day reception. So no, it's been it's been fun. Uh, but the book is about um, three friends growing up in very violent times and about young love and romance. And hopefully, when it comes here, people will be able to read it. Red River. It's got everything by the sound of it. Latika, by astonishing coincidence, you have also been to India recently. Yes, Somnath was uh, chasing me around India. <laughs> we've, we've, we've established. Um, yes, Andrew, just got back on Tuesday from a two and a half week trip, um, part holiday to celebrate my pre-40th and uh, a week in Delhi at the Rizina Dialogue, which was absolutely fascinating and chalk and cheese to the zeitgeist and the mood that exists in and pervades, I might say, in Europe. Uh, just briefly on that, how so? Uh, India is a country that is optimistic. It is not giving any cares about what people say about it or think about it, and it is on the move and in a hurry. I think uh, Europe held its Munich Security Forum the week prior mm-hmm. to Rizina, uh, depressed, 
economic growth is going nowhere and they literally were walking around going, my goodness, 2024 could be the end of us all. And is there, by happy coincidence, anywhere on the internet where people could read more of your thoughts about <laughs> India? <laughs> well, now that you mention it, <laughs> I have a wonderful substack, if I do say so myself, and I've written down actually all my thoughts on my recent travels in India. It's the first time I've been back in five years, so uh, a lot to digest and huge transformation. It's called Latika Takes, and you can see it at www.latikambert.com. Well, we will start tonight's show proper in Russia, where President Vladimir Putin thereof has unleashed his annual State of the Nation address. To boil an epically turgid two-hour whinge down to its essence, basically everybody is picking on poor little Russia for no reason at all. The world isn't fair, don't want to, don't have to, can't make me, etc. Putin did address recent remarks by a couple of European leaders, French President Emmanuel Macron, Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas, that the dispatch of European troops to Ukraine could not be altogether ruled out. Putin threatened not for the first time consequences up to and including the thermonuclear immolation of civilization. Um, Latika, was there anything really here we haven't heard before? He's sort of phoning these in at this point, isn't he? He is. We have heard these nuclear threats over and over again. Um, actually, William Alberk at the IISS has done some great work recently actually going through what Russia's tactical nuclear doctrine is. Mm. And it is aimed at soberizing the West. And he's made some very interesting comments analysing the state of play here that actually if things get out of hand and Putin keeps going on this, uh, what is called dosing, how much, how many to, uh, nuclear weapons you might use, the range, severity, etc., might ratchet up so out of control that he accidentally sparks a nuclear war should he ever go down this road. But I think the most interesting thing here is what does China and India do in relation to this? Because China, particularly President Xi, has been very, very firm with Putin Mm. about these threats on nuclear. And quite publicly so. And very rare for him. And so I think Putin uh, rattling the nuclear sabre, no, it's not new. But it does raise an uncomfortable pressure point for China at a sensitive time for for China and, I might add, the country I've just been in, India. Um, Somnath, is everybody taking Putin's nuclear bluffing less seriously than they did two years ago? And I guess the subsidiary question there is, are they right to take his nuclear bluffing less seriously than they did two years ago? It's a difficult one. I mean, I I think there are two sides to it. One that Putin, perhaps, if you take his... Um, state of uh, his address today, seriously, he thinks that the West is a declining power. Mm. Th- there's fragmentation in NATO. Uh, there is uh, the uh, bickering amongst politicians in the US. Uh, help or the ammunition uh, needed to, uh, is not being provided to Ukraine. And he thinks it can outlast uh, the West in this war. That is one side. Second is a much more a bigger existential question, perhaps, which the firm Oppenheimer presence that, you know, if one side gets weapons, the other side can mm-hmm. get it too. And if that happens, if this is pushed, where does it end? And will the West let, this big question, should you let Ukraine be a collateral and turn your eyes away? And then that un- uncomfortable question, will it be enough? You know, will Russia do anything further? So all of these questions are put into that address that, do you dare me? You know, will you? Do you really want to see? You don't know, Latika. 
I agree with you, Somnath, and I think this is two sides of the same coin here, Andrew, because what you have at surface level is people like us saying, oh, here he goes again, making another destruction of civilization threat. But on the other hand, think about it this way. We have not armed Ukraine to win this war. No. Deliberately so. And why? One of the answers to that is because there is a fear in some sections of Europe that pushing Putin up against a wall would lead him to put his finger on that nuclear button and say fire. And so, yes, I think on one hand we are laughing at these threats again. On the other hand, they do have some weight and where it's really significant is whether we give Ukraine those arms to, to win or not. And so far, we're not. Well, just to follow that up, Latika, one area in which you can see that the threat is significant is that we have not, or that is we, by which I mean Europe and the Western world, have not sent uniformed troops to Ukraine. We've sent a lot of weapons, but over the last two years, we have seen us, we've seen the West gradually walking over self-imposed red lines. And this this is one of the last remaining. Do you actually send troops? Because because the against, I guess, the threat of a precipitate nuclear reaction by Russia, there is the trouble that Europe and the United States have now invested so much in Ukraine that surely they cannot uh, accept anything short of Ukrainian victory. Well, Olaf Scholz has made a set of what are really unfortunate comments in essentially billing uh, that there are Western troops operating in Ukraine and they've been operating long, long-range missiles and other particular technologies for Ukraine on behalf of Ukraine. Now, that alone could be seen as an escalation. Um, Obviously, what Macron has been talking about this last week is a wider use of European troops in Ukraine. I don't particularly take that seriously. Macron has a long habit of making (laughs) some interesting and creative thoughts at times, but also ones that kind of go pop and no one ever talks about them again. Obviously, people are reacting to this one because it's such a huge claim. Clearly, Europe's got to step up its game here, regardless of what happens, whether it's boots on the ground. They're going to have to step up and defend themselves because they're looking at the prospect of the United States withdrawing, whether or not that is Donald Trump in the White House this time next year. So the game is going to change. I don't necessarily think it leads to a military outcome in terms of European troops, but Europe is going to change, and I think it will. Um, Just finally on this one, Somnath, a couple of things Putin pointedly did not mention. One was uh, Alexei Navalny, which is perhaps isn't that surprising. I I think Putin is just very much hoping everybody forgets he ever existed. But he very much did not mention Transnistria, the the puppet parliament of which convened this farcical ritual earlier this week in which they begged Russia to come and rescue them from beneath the iron boot heel of Moldova. Um, Why do you think he didn't address that is he trying to hang the threat out a bit longer does he actually not really want to get into it or did he simply forget it was there i think he conveniently forgot because the issues he wanted to talk about is again russian families army the west creating that enemy so i mean this is his speech he lays out the spectacle so both both the issues that you mentioned were the uncomfortable elephants which he wouldn't want to touch on now I think one of the big things which is, again, pushed on is Russians, poor people, families, bigger families, you know, those kind of issues, which is wants to move away even from the war and talk about a greater Russian Russian idea. So uh, perhaps because of that. But again, given that this was his speech and his to lay out anything uncomfortable, except perhaps the war which he had to touch on, has been kept quiet.
Well, sticking with the subject of authoritarian demagogues currently sauntering into elections they confidently expect to win, matters are at least a little bit more complicated for India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi on the grounds that the country he governs remains some semblance of a democracy. The freedom to dissent is presently being lustily embraced by Indian farmers, in Punjab in particular. They are seeking legal guarantees of minimum purchase prices for their crops and they may well fancy their chances, especially with an election looming. It is only two years since protests by farmers forced a rare climb down by Modi, who binned agricultural reforms after nearly 12 months of protest. Um, Somnath, to the nub of the complaint first, is this a variation on the same thing as two years ago, or are the farmers upset about something else entirely? It's a variation of the same theme. Uh, they feel that the Modi government hasn't engaged them enough uh, since what the, what was promised to them. Basically, the main idea is a minimum guarantee uh, mm. for their crops. Uh, look, they have a very valid complaint, which is an average farmer in uh, India today, an average household, earns less than $140 a month. You know, that's not enough to live in with prices are rising, shooting up. And nearly 50% of India is still involved in mm-hmm. agriculture. So it's a solid, huge voting block too. The problem, though, is that the middle class, the media, do not seem to understand this connect between hunger, food, and their own t- stomachs for survival. There's just this complete disconnect. It just seems that they can order food on Amazon and Uber and it just comes. Right? This strange... Um, I think that that's not uncommon where people are removed several steps from the production of food. You just indeed. assumed it just appears. It just appears, indeed. And, and this is a big disconnect. So the impact which should have been made is just not being... Because it's removed from the media, the power circles, Delhi... And I was in I was in uh, Delhi during the uh, weeks of protest, and all people were saying. I mean, my my book launch was being had. People kept on saying, "Oh, we can't cross the border. It's really difficult." So there was no conversation around what's happening, but it's inconvenient <laughs> to me. And I was hoping the protest would die down at least for that afternoon, so that people would turn up. And <laughs> um, Latika Somnath, I think, has partially answered the question of why Modi buckled last time when he's not usually a man for buckling. He has over his career driven through uh, various initiatives and policies which were, well, of, of dubious utility, but even once they started to founder, went ahead with them anyway. As, as Somnath was pointing out, this is a huge number of people, 55% or thereabouts of Indians, do rely primarily on agriculture for a living. Um, would Modi dare confront the farmers with an election looming? I think, <coughs> pardon me, Two, two interesting things are happening here that's different to last time. One, whether these farmer protests spread across India is the open question. The second is they've actually blocked them from reaching Delhi. And that's mm, yeah. critical yeah. because this time they put up spikes, they put up blocks. And so these farmers are being held on the edges. And that's also really important. They can't hijack the capital. And so the ability to insulate the government is higher. And... I'm not entirely sure this will be a massive election problem for the Modi government because of that. Because they can't stage a sit-in, um, they are have asked X, the Twitter uh, platform, yeah, to take down 
and ordered X to take down protester accounts. This is a very different way of managing these protests, suppressing dissent. And I think for that reason, it's not going to have the electoral impact, <clears throat> pardon me, on Modi that it did last time. I mean, is there anything here, Somnath, that the actual opposition parties could work with? Is there a mood here that they could capture? The farmers are the only opposition at the moment, right? You know, uh, I, I, there's no other opposition. Um, look, the actual political situation is this in India. A majoritarian government tells the majority that we will give you what you want. Mm. There's no break, to, you know, there's nothing. I mean, the only way the opposition can better this is by saying, we'll let you do worse, you know, which in this political climate won't happen. So if there is, Latika and I think both are in agreement that this will not be a political problem. The elections won't be decided I mean, there, there are some tremors, but uh, I don't think it'll be a major decisive factor. But is there not, Latika, and I don't know whether you detected any such thing while you were there, and in any instinctive public sympathy with the farmers, especially given the astonishing numbers of Indians who still do still pursue uh, an agricultural life? I think... And I certainly didn't appreciate this until my last three weeks on the ground in India and talking to not elites, actually. I spent a great deal of time trying to talk to just everyday Indians that I came across. And a couple of things are very different. One, I mean, Modi is a messiah in India. It's really, really hard to convey just how loved, adored, almost cult-like status it is. Secondly, there is huge self-censorship going on in mm. India at the elite level. They know, everybody knows, you know, I was told multiple times, oh, no, we're not critical of the government. Don't do that. You won't get invited back <laughs> next year. You know, these things are a problem. Critics, even with OCI visas, are being uh, denied entry to India. So this is a very serious repression of free speech that is happening. I uh, asked a lot of people about this. I said, you know, Everyone was very enthusiastic. Under Prime Minister Modi, the development of India is happening. That's undeniable. It's incredible. But when I did ask them, I said, well, what about this? What about the crackdown? What about the media? I don't care. I don't care because Modi is delivering us the development we've never had. And so you do see how they square this equation. One very young, urbane, you know, in any other world, a progressive woman who could have been working in the elites told me uh, before I'd even got to my question about Modi, she says, well, there's just pros and cons to everything, you know, after remarking about the development. So you do have to understand that people who are being given progress that they've always been promised and has never materialised by a previous government that was extremely corrupt, this is looking like a good offer to them. Well, to the Netherlands, which has long been proverbial for its indulgent attitude towards the consum consumption rather of substances forbidden elsewhere, if usually forbidden elsewhere much more in theory than in practice. The long-serving and apparently long-suffering mayor of Rotterdam for one Dutch office holder is advocating a harder line. Ahmed Abutaleb is vexed by the general abandonment of any efforts to prosecute middle-class cocaine use, a dereliction he believes has contributed to violence and corruption, which mostly plagues those Rotterdam neighbourhoods which consumers of post-dinner party bugle tend not to visit. Um, Somnath, does he actually have a point here? I think he has made a very important connection that our um, middle or upper middle class use of cocaine in Chelsea means uh, knife crime in 
South London mm-hmm. and our children are being affected and we increasingly see this kind of urban violence which is related to drugs. I think that's an important connection he has made and it's not highlighted enough. We just see, think that drug problem is somewhere else and it's amongst the poor or deprived areas. He's saying your use is fueling this. Having said this, I think the, the difficult part is that what he wants to do about it. You know, the U.S. has led a very hard since 1960s a war against drugs, as mm-hmm. they say, and have failed miserably, right? Uh, Amsterdam, the mayor of Amsterdam is proposing a different uh, tack, which is, you know, uh, make it unprofitable by regulating it. Uh, so I don't know what the, um, what action or what, uh, you know, what governmental uh, uh, position would facilitate or bring it down, help solve this situation. But I think what he is saying is, guys, open up. This is you guys doing this. And we tend to, uh, you know, the middle class tend to either, I mean, I'm not saying that all middle class people do drugs or upper middle class, but that it's something which we don't relate to ourselves that the drug, drug crime. Uh, well, indeed not. Latika, I, I, I do take his point about the effect that middle-class cocaine use has on the poorer neighbourhoods of the cities in which it takes place, though I'm not sure appealing to the empathy of habitual cocaine users is going to get him terribly far. Um, but there is a point here as well in that middle-class drug use is pretty common, I think, in every major city in every developed country, and it is not policed at all. When did, when did you last read of the wallopers kicking the doors off um, somebody's upscale townhouse just as the marching powder was being distributed after a nice dinner? Almost never. And I agree with his diagnosis. What I differ with him, though, is I think he's making a great case to legalise, regulate and tax the hell out of drugs like this, middle-class drugs, not talking heroin or anything. And there's a very good example of this in where you and I are from, Andrew. In the Pacific, Mm. uh, drugs or cocaine used to be uh, imported into Australia. Sydney is the highest uh, cocaine cost in the world. It's got a very, very high cocaine use. Those drugs used to be imported into Australia via Latin America, Now, all of that is spilling over into the Pacific. So you're getting tiny islands, countries that are poor, becoming drug users. And so you have regional spillover. Of course, that leads to crime. It leads to corruption. All the problems that we as a region are trying to deal with. And so I think there's multiple, multiple reasons to open a conversation about this and have a look at, one, the cost, which I think is even more widespread than he uh, is talking about in in this piece and Somnath refers to here. But also looking at at the organised crime that comes regionally with this. I mean, this is serious stuff. Criminal criminal drugs are supporting criminal activities at the very worst levels around the world, if you look. It's trafficking, it is gangs, it is murders, it is the worst stuff. And I think pretending we're having a successful war on drugs is an absolute folly. Um, Nevertheless, Somnath, is there a case, do you think, for surrender, I guess, in the war on drugs? You mentioned the mayor of Amsterdam, Femke Halsema, uh, who thinks cocaine should be sold and regulated and taxed. Um, And she's pitching that because she's worried, she said out loud, that the Netherlands will turn into an actual narco state. But is the argument not that the solution is more law enforcement rather than less? Because there, there, there is... 
there is a conservative argument to drugs, which is, and I realise, as I say it, that this is a bit like those people who insist that communism is always a disaster because proper communism has never been tried. But nevertheless, nobody has ever really been serious about actually waging a legal campaign against drugs. I mean, drug use is incredibly commonplace. It is barely policed. Gosh. This question has been plaguing <laughs> politicians around the world. I don't know. How, oh, you've got a couple of minutes. How I hard mean, can it be? I, <laughs> again, I don't know how to answer this in the sense that millions of dollars have been spent actually on policing. Uh, um, I mean, waging the war against, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the US. Uh, I mean, Latin America has been ra- ravaged because of this. So how do you wage a war which is so internal you know uh, as, i mean i think saying war is the wrong you know war implies nation states this is in a completely different zone so, i mean um no you've really got me Andrew. i mean <laughs> this question has plagued so many you know, two minutes just solved this problem no i don't know i i really don't know uh, i mean nor am i uh, the kind of libertarian who says you know let it flow free i uh, it's a kind of there's a huge immediate risk to it at least. Um, But that kind of aggressive war, as you say, has not worked for many decades. So historically, if you look at it, it's it's failed. So I I, I don't know. Uh, Latika, you might have a better answer. If we could police it and I could see a formula that would meaningfully reduce it, I'd be all up for that. But I don't think one exists. Just finally, though, Latika, to go back to something you were saying earlier, where are you on the slippery slope argument? Because if you, if, <laughs> if you go as far as saying, OK, fine, you, you can buy cocaine over the counter. We will regulate it and tax it, but we will legalise cocaine. If you're going to legalise that, what is there still an argument for criminalising? I think drugs which are, you know, if you take them, you might die from that one hit. I think that's a problem. But in Australia, we've had the heroin injecting rooms, which actually did a huge amount of work in solving what was a huge problem in the 90s of heroin addicts dying on the street. They introduced programs to help methadone, um, to help wean them off. And the streets are very safe as a result. And that's been an excellent trial. Now, I personally have no truck with drugs. I don't you know, if I had children, I would not be saying to my children, go go nuts, kids. <laughs> I think they're very dangerous. And one of the problems I see from the way it's currently enforced is that if young kids are taking drugs at festivals and they get into serious trouble, one of the problems that prohibits them, and you hear this a lot in cases where they die, is that they didn't want to tell anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think if these were regulated and there's a problem, ideally they wouldn't be because they're not filled with disgusting substances that will kill you. Um, But people could go to ambulances very quickly and say, this is what we took. Here's where we got it. Can you help us? Can we save this life? I also think there is a bit of an argument for something that you get over the counter at a chemist or or something is really not that sexy and really not that wild (laughs) and really not that fun. So, you know, if you want to try that over alcohol... um, I, I do think there's a bit of a case, and I think we do need to be a bit honest that we've lost the debate on it. 
Moving along to something entirely more trivial. Today is February 29th, so a happy 25th birthday to any listeners born in 1924. <laughs> February 29th also marks the observance of a splendidly French journalistic tradition. It is publication day for the satirical magazine La Bougie du Sapeur. Its launch issue appeared on February 29th, 1980, and issue 12 should be on French newsstands today. The journal has managed to make a virtue of its scarcity. The gang of friends who founded the Quadrennial for a lark claimed to shift 200,000 issues at €4.90 ago. The magazine has no online presence, although does intriguingly feature an ongoing fiction series, the cliffhanger endings of which must be spectacular. Um, (laughs) Are we... we, I will ask you, first of all, Atika, as somebody who came up on the absolutely merciless deadlines of daily newspapers... Are you are you a fan of like a, a four year lead time? Absolutely, <laughs> sign me up. Anyone that wants to pay me to work once a, uh, every four years, I am here for you. I'm your girl. I, I, I quite write novels in that time. <laughs> and, you know, the well, actually, no, no, come on, that's not how it would work. We've all been journalists. We would get our commission, say it's due four years from now, and, and we'd do it uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. And three years and three hundred and sixty-four days later, we'd be thinking, Christ, I should make a start on that. Um, but there, there is kind of an inbuilt brilliance, I think, uh, to oh, the business model, Somnath, in that nobody is going to remember setting up a direct debit four or eight or twenty years ago. People are just going to be thinking, oh, what was that for euros? Oh, whatever. You can find 200,000 people who'll do that. You are made. Wow. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I mean, is, do they allow online debits and stuff? Because it's not available I, I, online. In a very French way, they might someone might be sitting there taking cash. Uh, I am told by Carlotta in the production booth you can subscribe for 100 years for 100 oh, yes, euros. Oh, yes, 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 I did read that. There you Credit go. card expired. <laughs> <laughs> You I hate to bring in the details. You leave it to your progeny. <laughs> this is the this is the thing. I think they get the money up front. This is kind ah, of this yeah. is kind of brilliant. But th- there is, I think, son. A... I give you nothing else, but I give you a subscription of. <laughs> but but there is, I think, um, something here about. You know, regular listeners to Monocle and regular readers of Monocle, and who wouldn't be either of those things, will understand that we are big fans of the idea of the print publication. Yeah. And there is here this kind of, it strikes me, a demonstration of two things. One is the power of print. People like it. People look forward to it. They like it arriving through their letterboxes or picking it off the newsstand. But there is also, and I will put this to you, Latika, there's something of the power of kind of a running gag, and I don't know enough French to be able to assess whether the humour in La Bougie du Sapeur is actually funny <laughs> or not, but it does it does strike me that two of the magazines I subscribe to, which are the British journals Private Eye and Viz, I have essentially been, been reading the same jokes in both of them <laughs> for about 30 years each, and yet... I would miss them if they weren't there. You yeah. get people hooked. You get them to feel like they're part of a club. They will keep coming back. Some Somewhere in that, Andrew, I think there's a definition of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you described it. <laughs> uh, very, very, very possibly. Um, I, I did want to ask you both just finally, though, if, if neither of you have, and I'll ask you first, Somneth, if you've never worked on a four-year lead time, what is actually the longest gulf you can remember between 
being commissioned something and it actually appearing in print. Not a book like your fine novel. 13 years. 13 years. Red River, available now, which took 13 years. 2010. Uh, but because book deadlines are a whole other yes. thing, everybody knows that. But have you ever like written something that took so long to get published that you completely forgotten you'd written it? Gosh, no, that hasn't happened. <laughs> but, but there are there are commissions, which has been about six years, and I'm still writing them. But Andrew, just it's on the, far more often to say yes, six years, and I still haven't been paid. <laughs> <laughs> but on the print front, Andrew, from I just had my fiftieth birthday, and as a birthday gift, my wife brought in the Guardian. And the Times, Times just to have a poke at me and said, coffee, and you can read all morning. So, you know, just having something in print, that, as that you say. Is, just, that, that is a heck of a birthday gift a as well. That's a huge that, that, that betrays an incredibly insightful understanding of the needs, wants, and desires of the middle-aged man. You, you, oh, it's, it's like, I want the newspapers, a cup of coffee, and to be left alone for a couple all of morning, hours. All morning, all yeah, morning. No, that's a magnificent gift. I know. Um, Latika, have you ever run across the very long gap between submission and publication? Only on my book, and it was only my end because my commission was 2010, same as you, Somnath. Uh, it wasn't published till I think, 2015. Oh, I beat you. You, square, square. you did, you did. <laughs> and I was a little ashamed to, to admit that until you came out with your lead time, so thank you very much. Uh, and would you just like to mention the title of that book while oh, you're Oh, it's here? called From India with Love. Um. It's about being adopted from India. There you go. In all good stores. Uh, Latika Burke and Somnath Batabayal, thank you both for joining us. Finally today, the National Railways of Italy and Slovenia have announced plans for a high-speed link between the two countries. The line from Milan to Ljubljana could be up and running as early as June. But Monocle's man in the region, Guy Delaunay, is all too aware that trains in the region remain a long way from the long-promised destination of friction-free travel. It isn't nice to laugh at colleagues, particularly not when they've written a lovely story for the current issue of Monocle's escapist travel special, available at fine magazine vendors, kiosks and newsstands around the world. But I have to admit that I couldn't suppress a peculiarly bitter, but nonetheless heartfelt, kind of giggle emerging when I read the column in praise of European rail journeys, or to be more precise, train dining cars. Because one of the journeys highlighted as an Epicurean Express was the line from Ljubljana to Vienna. It was described as swift and scenic. Now, I'm not going to dispute that the views along the track linking Slovenia's capital with the former seat of Habsburg power are anything other than ravishing, at least in theory. But swift? I'm afraid I'm going to have to take issue with that, because I have recent personal experience of attempting to travel by rail between the two cities, and, alas, the nearest I came to an actual train was staying at a hotel with a panoramic view of Wien Hauptbahnhof. I'd booked that particular establishment thinking it'd be an ideal location for a swift pre-Christmas city break. Tumble off the train, sling overnight bag in room and head straight to Belvedere Castle for a bit of klimt with a side order of Weihnachtsmarkt action. That was the plan and at least two-thirds of it turned out pretty well. The problem part turned out to be the train because there's only one direct service from Ljubljana to Vienna each day. It leaves just past four in the afternoon and arrives shortly after 10 in the evening, which is fine if you're a homeward-bound Wiener who's just enjoyed a sojourn in Slovenia, but not so great if you're hoping to get two days of seasonal shenanigans in Austria's capital out of one night's accommodation. This is the point at which the seasoned European rail traveller turns to the ultimate authority, 
by which I mean the Deutsche Bahn website. More than once, this resource has come up with connections that the helpful ticket office staff at Ljubljana station didn't even realize existed. And it told me that the service at 7.24 in the morning, with a quick change in Villach, was barely any slower than the direct train. Admittedly, six and a quarter hours was about double the time it would have taken by car, but a leisurely coffee in the onboard bar, the pleasure of not having to drive, and yes, those ravishing views all made it seem like a reasonable trade-off. Not so fast, said the ticket clerk at Ljubljana station. Yes, I know it's not so fast, I replied, but that's okay. No, no, she retorted. I mean, it's not a very good idea. You've only got eight minutes to change at Villach, and the train from Ljubljana is often late. The connecting service won't wait, so there'll be every chance you'll be stuck in Villach for two hours until the next train. Now, I've heard great things about Villach, and one day I plan to discover whether they're true. But the trip I had in mind only had time for Vienna and it was becoming abundantly clear that the train was not going to get me there in time for lunch. As the pleasures of the dining car were also off my particular travel menu, it was time to accept defeat. All this is a typical tale of a train lover trying to take a rail journey in the region and coming up against the cold, hard realities of transport connections in the former Yugoslavia. I'll spare you the details of one particularly gruesome trip from Zagreb to Belgrade on a train with malfunctioning climate control and no catering. Suffice to say, rarely has any visitor been so welcome as the elderly gentleman who tottered into the carriage bearing a tin tray of Turkish coffee in white plastic water cooler cups. He'd taken advantage of our interminable wait at the border town of Shid to brew the most delicious beverage I'd ever tasted. At least it seemed that way after seven thirsty hours and counting. I couldn't repeat that experience even if I wanted to, because political shenanigans means there's no longer a rail link between the capitals of Croatia and Serbia. It's a similar story for Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's currently completely cut off from the international rail network. The disheartening advice from the train-loving man in seat 61 website? Take a taxi. So, is Trenitalia's recent announcement of an express service between Ljubljana and Milan the news we've all been waiting for? Well, I'm not cheering just yet. For starters, the launch date has already been put back from April to June, and secondly, I can't see how speeds on the Slovenian side of the border can be anything other than leisurely. Put it this way, for a day trip to Venice Carnival earlier this month, I took a shared electric car as far as Trieste Airport, then an Italian train the rest of the way. Total journey time under three hours. It would have taken more than double that if I'd taken the train from Ljubljana. Perhaps the best we can hope for is that seeing Freccia Rossa high-speed services trundling along Slovenian tracks will shame the countries of the former Yugoslavia into getting their railway act together, or, at the very least, offering decent dining cars so we can make a virtue of slow travel. For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. Thank you, Guy. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Latika Burke and Somnath Batabile. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Lily Austin with editing assistance by Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.